Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace on the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Hello and welcome to Still Watching Versace, a new podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. Each week we will take a deep dive into the nine episodes of this series and talk with some of the stars and creatives behind the scenes. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson and joining me as ever is my co-host and Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. Hi. As well as special guest and Vanity Fair editor Katie Rich. Hello. This week, in advance of the series premiere on January 17th, we'll be discussing some basics of the case as well as the 1999 book that inspired the series, Vulgar Favors, Andrew Kananen, Johnny Versace, and the Largest Failed Manhunt in U.S. History by Vanity Fair contributor Maureen Orth. Maureen herself will be joining us later in the episode. Before we kick off to discuss the book, which Katie and I have both read, and also some of the details of the case that people might not be familiar with, we want to start by first discussing some feedback that has already come in before the episodes have even aired from the Versace family themselves. Uh, have you guys taken a look at, at sort of some of this conversation that's been going on in the media? Yeah, they essentially called they you know a work of fiction, right? They said, you know, we didn't sign, no one signed off on this, and and so we, you know we can't we can't. Uh, take any ownership of it right yeah and you know this is this is sort of earlier than 
some of Ryan Murphy's other shows on FX, like People versus O.J. Simpson, or more famously, this last year, Feud, um, have gotten similar pushback from the real people involved. And, um, and it's interesting that the Versace sort of decided to get in front of it before presumably they had seen any of the episodes. Um, Katie, well, Katie, so what did also- you... Yeah, it's also interesting that the Versace's um, were speaking out against it because in a lot of ways, the book is not really about Versace. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but uh, Maureen had been reporting on Andrew Cananan before he murdered Versace. And then, you know, that kind of became the the outstanding aspect of the case. But I, I imagine the show used a lot of other sources besides the book to talk about the Versace's, um, which I'm sure kind of took them by surprise when either they saw trailers for the show or something. Because that was, you know, they, they've known about the book for 20 years, but what, what's in this show, they might not have known what to expect. Right. And, um, Ryan Murphy has since given a statement to, to Variety. The, the show premiere had its LA premiere on Monday and sort of coincided exactly with the Versace family statement. And, and Ryan Murphy told Variety, you know, we issued a statement saying that this story is based on Maureen Orr's book, which is a very celebrated, lauded work of nonfiction that was vetted now for close to 20 years. That's really all I have to say about it, other than, of course, I feel if your family, if your family is ever portrayed in something, it's natural to sort of have a, well, let's wait and see what happens stance. Um, but Murphy also pointed out that Donatello Versace sent Penelope Cruz, who the actress who will be portraying Donatella in the series, a very large arrangement of flowers, um, he said yesterday, so I presume Sunday. So, you know, that's sort of, and, and Penelope had said as well that she had, you know, she has relationship with Donatella. She had spoken with Donatella before doing the series. Uh, she mentioned this when the show had a panel at the Television Critics Association, a winter press tour earlier this week. And so there has been some interaction between the family and the actors portraying them, but there's also this tension. And I imagine we'll see probably even more tension from, and this is something Maureen will talk about in her interview, but more tension potentially from the surviving family of the various victims of Andrew Cunanan, because um, this is a, this is a fictionalized version of something that is still very painful, not only to the Versace family, but to these other families as well. So. And one dimension of this also is that in this, the second statement that the family released uh, in response to Ryan Murphy's statement, um, you know, they, they really go after, uh, Maureen Orr's book. And, and, and the, the one example they, they give is that, you know, they say Orth makes assertions about Gianna Versace's medical condition based on a person, you know, who, and then they go on to say basically this, the person couldn't have known. And what they're referring to is the assertion that, uh, Versace was HIV positive at the time of his death, which, um, you know, is, I guess, a point of contention and, and also a sort of, um, particular sensitivity that I think is reflected, not necessarily uh, in, in the Versace character, but just in a broader sense on the show. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there was a lot of misinformation swirling around um, at the time. You know, there was there was a false story that Andrew Kinnett himself was HIV positive, And that's not true. He was, you know, tested, and he's HIV negative. And so there's a lot of ways in which um, the politics around homosexuality and, and AIDS HIV at the time informed both the media treatment of the case and um, the the police hunt itself. And that's something we will be exploring as as the series unfolds. Um, but first, I, I just want to lay out some basics of the case so that we're all on the same page. Um, if you read uh, Maureen's book, Vulgar Favors, it, it takes you all the way through Andrew Cannon's life. And that's what the show will eventually do told in reverse, but it will eventually do the same. Um, but for the purpose of, of the crime story, titular crime story, an American crime story, uh, it starts... 
in Minneapolis in 1997 uh, with Andrew Kinnan and killing a friend of his, Jeffrey Trail. He then a few days later, or maybe just like a day and a half later, killed um, another friend and former lover of his, David Madsen. Um, then fully on the run, Andrew Kananen killed 72-year-old real estate mogul Lee Miglin, who he may or may not have known. That's a point of contention. Uh, in May of 1997, and still on the run, and, and at this point, the FBI and a lot of other authorities are involved trying to find him. Um, he kills a 45-year-old caretaker, William Reese, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, or sorry, in New Jersey. And then he makes his way down to Miami. Who does not seem to know him, just like right. William Reese is the one figure who seems to be actually a totally random killing. Seems that Andrew Kanana needed needed a car and randomly killed this guy. And then makes his way down to Miami Beach, Florida. Um, and on July 15th, 1997, kills Johnny Versace on the front steps of his own home. And then flees for a, a bit longer um, before taking his own life in Florida. So I wanted to talk to both Richard and Katie Richard, um, what you know about the case, and you've also watched the first couple episodes of the series. We're not going to get into, I don't know if it's possible to spoil history, but we're not going to go too in-depth into these episodes because we will be covering them on a weekly basis. But I just wanted to discuss with you guys some of the basics of the case, some of the things that you're excited about in terms of what the series will cover, some of the things maybe you have some, if you have any trepidation over what the series might cover. Um, and I guess I'll start with Katie and and wanting to know if the book was at all what you expected, what you read of it, and and what you were surprised to learn from it. I mean, I think having not known a ton about the case beyond like the very basics, and when the, when the show was announced, I really expected it to be a story about the fashion world and about the Versaces, and you hear the Penelope Cruz is playing Donatella, and Ricky Martin's in there. Um, but what the book is about is Andrew Kanan, and uh, Maureen had been reporting on him for um, several months before Versace was killed, and he is kind of the uh, terrifying, charismatic, weird character at the center of the book and my understanding is that the show uh, makes the balance a little bit more even, that it's much more about Versace, and you've got Edgar Ramirez playing Versace. Um, but Andrew Kanan is, I think, probably way more fascinating than I ever expected. And I know that as a culture, we tend to romanticize serial killers way more than they deserve, but he is worthy of this entire book. He's like a, a sad and kind of uh, disgusting figure in a lot of ways, but it's 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 fascinating to learn about him and read this book. Richard, since we, since we spoke before the break in our little preview episode, um, you know, what what have you learned about the case um, that has either changed your ideas about it or, or gotten you more interested and invested in what the show might bring? Well, I've, I've learned a lot. I mean, I had I, I, I promised I was going to read the book and then I did. And um, but I have I have good reasons for that. Uh, I had to read some other books, but um, <laughs> I, I wrote a book and I have to read other books so I can talk to these other authors about it. anyway. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. What I have learned this is, a, this is promotion for your book, actually. Exactly. <laughs> what I have learned uh, is is really from what I've read online and what I've watched on the show. And I really didn't know anything about this. I mean, I was fourteen when it happened, and or about to be fourteen. And, and um, uh, I think then my understanding was that it was a scorned lover thing, and it clearly was not that. Um, and I didn't know anything about the the other people that Cunin murdered uh, in the months leading up to Versace's uh, death. Uh, and the more I've learned about it, the, uh, the sadder and more harrowing it gets. I mean, obviously Versace's death alone was, was, was both of those things, but, uh, just the enormity of, of this. And, and, and it's really, and I think the show is going to do this. And I'm curious to hear you, you guys on, on, on whether Maureen or, or book does this, but, um, you know, there, there is a, a 
political dimension to this in 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 the sort of the gay aspects of it and it's obviously not as um uh plainly stated a political thing as the people versus oj simpson or the oj simpson case was um but i will be inter- i'll be curious to see the show tease out uh, whatever sort of um broader uh you know applications they can about about what this case means in in a more societal sense yeah, you know, and that's something at, at the Television Critics Association panel, that's something that Ryan, both Ryan Murphy and the show's uh, main writer, Todd Rob Smith, who wrote London Spy and Child 44, uh, talked about, which is how, you know, just as OJ gave us a, a look at, you know, race relations and gender issues and the way in which they have and haven't changed since the mid-90s, uh, this provides an opportunity to explore, you know, homophobia in the media and in law enforcement and the way in which it really prevented a lot of people from doing their jobs, the way in which it really stymied the manhunt, you know, the the subtitle of Maureen's book, you know, the largest failed manhunt in U.S. history is really telling because she is um, the first half of the book is really everything about Andrew Cunanan leading up to the murders. But the back half is really is a very holding the law enforcement's feet to the fire in terms of the various assumptions and miscalculations they made um, when, you know, when they found, and, and you'll see this in the show as well, when they, when they found the first body and just the fact that there was sort of some S and M paraphernalia in, in the crime scene or something like that immediately just characterizes this <laughs> scene for them as some sort of, gay tryst gone awry and then they don't interrogate it much further for a little while after that and that um is frustrating because especially the way the the show will tell it which is in reverse so you've got this reversed narrative ticking time bomb of you know what's coming you know it's all going to end and the show starts with um this assassination of a of a creative genius and and all of Andrew Kinnanen's victims are of course um tragedies in their own right and um but the fact that every mistake that the police makes gives Andrew Kinnanen more time to go forward on this course you know was that your sense at all reading it Katie that like every time the police did something wrong i mean it's easy for us to judge 20 years later but every time the police did something wrong you're just like yeah you're just giving andrew more time to go you know yeah oh yeah no there's definitely a suspense in the book where you're kind of watching them there's this one part where they they leak to the press that his a car he's stolen is being tracked with the cell phone signals and he heard it on the radio and that's why he ditched the car and uh and murdered murdered the fourth man that he killed uh most likely to steal his car but then there's also um you're talking about the homophobia that kind of led them to misunderstand it there's also a fear of homophobia like especially when it comes to the miami police and the FBI where they want to let the gay community know but they don't want to like target it and they don't want to assume that he's just going to be hanging around in gay bars even though that's like almost certainly what he would have done like there's this this kind of touchy relationship between the gay community and the police that existed at the time and and in many ways still exists um, that made them just like hesitant they didn't really know how to communicate with each other so it's kind of watching like PC culture and the idea of gay people being like an emerging powerful community. Um, there's this amazing part where uh, one of the people quoted in the story is Christine Quinn, who at the time was um, the head of some kind of uh, LGBT uh organization in New York and then went on to run for mayor of New York City. Um, but you see how this this community is growing, but uh, you know the police for the most part like don't totally know how to handle it one way or another. Yeah, you know that is 
that is entirely fascinating in this idea also that when after Versace was killed and they did not know where Andrew Cunanan was, uh, there was this idea that maybe he would start targeting more of the, you know, because he was He's famously fascinating with Versace, and uh, according to Maureen's book and and a lot of a lot of sources, did did at least lightly know Versace before the murders. the The show kind of treats this as a question mark, but um, Maureen has a lot of people on the record talking about this, and so Andrew knew Versace, but was also fascinated with a number of other personalities. And so there was there was this idea from the FBI that like maybe those other famous people would be in danger, maybe. Andrew would go and try to find them too. But there was, they also didn't want to release who those people might be because then they would be calling them gay because a lot of Andrew Cannon's targets were gay and that they didn't want to out people. It was just this like, yeah, this snarl of hesitation and confusion around this, this particular issue. And also something that I didn't realize before I read Maureen's book is, um, how much how much the O.J. Simpson trial informed the hesitancy of the law enforcement in this particular case because that was such a um, high-profile misstep from the LAPD in terms of some circumstantial evidence. Um, they were so hesitant to make any leaps or make any step outside of the bounds of discovery of, of um, evidence discovery. And that, you know, we obviously want the police to be meticulous, but perhaps in this case to a fault uh, given, you know, all of the media criticism of the investigation of OJ Simpson. So is that, is that um, there's some fascinating, just unsolved mysteries in this book because, you know, the police picked up on a lot of things, but you know, Maureen writes about how the FBI goes and interviews all the people Andrew knows and learns a lot, but didn't do anything with it. So she then goes and talks to all these people and you learn about the things that he lied about and the things he didn't lie about. And you never do know for sure if he knew Lee Miglin or his son, Um, although there's like a strong implication that he does. There's a, you know, this guy was especially slippery. And for all the the ways that the police messed it up, like he made it, he didn't make it hard to find him. He wasn't really a, that canny a killer, but what he lied about and what he had actually done in his actual background, there's there's just a lot of layers of what's knowable and what's not knowable in the story. Right. I mean, he's a he's a fabulist, and so to yeah, separate the fact of the fiction of his of what he was saying, and also as you know. <clears throat> Maureen finds in this book and, and you, you can tell when she's interviewing, when she's quoting someone she believes and someone she doesn't believe. Uh, it's pretty clear <laughs> in the book. And so it's not just like Andrew's prevarications that we have to navigate, but also uh, the people. And you saw this with OJ too. The people who want the, um, oversplash of fame from having known Andrew. And so they will make up things just to be able to be interviewed by um, the tabloids or whomever. So it is it is really hard to parse exactly what happened, um, especially since a lot of the story, both in the show and, you know, certain sections of the book, it's just Andrew on the run by himself and with the people that he killed. And so we don't have witnesses for what happened there. And that's where the FX series has to take some of its larger leaps in um, uh, inventing uh, what, what might have happened. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, I'm it's, really, I mean, I'm especially fascinating to see what they do with David Madsen because that's a, a part of the book that doesn't have a lot of information because he died two days after Jeff Trail, who was killed inside David Madsen's apartment. He was seen as a suspect by the police for a while for somewhat good reasons, not good reasons. Um, but I imagine that the show is going to depict that and there's just no way of knowing what actually happened. So I'm curious about how much of a leap that, that they take with that. 
And, you know, without going into too much detail, Richard and I have both seen that episode. And I I actually think it's maybe the best episode of the series. The the one that actually probably deviates or has ha, by force has to invent the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's something that's interesting about the show. Um, you know, there's obviously the you know, when I wrote about um, People versus O.J. Simpson, when I wrote a review of that, you know, what, three years ago now um, there. uh there's this thing about like 20 years. It's like enough time to remember, but it's not enough time to really have fully processed. It, it's, a, it's a really strange length for not nostalgia, but just looking back. And I found that really compelling about OJ. And I think it's going to be compelling about, about uh, uh, Versace as well. Um, you know, for all the reasons you guys stated about the kind of political temper with, with the, you know, the out community and, and being politically correct or whatever. But I think also, and, and something that, that Joanna, that the, that the episode you just mentioned, um, does also is there's a real, um, it, as the series broadens, there's a real emotional heft to it that, um, I really was not expecting. And I think that, people might kind of tune in for the flashy Miami Versace celebrity fashion of it. And, you know, for good reason, um, because that stuff is interesting if dark as well. But um, yeah, I think, I think the show is going to offer a lot more, um, uh, I don't know, something a little deeper than, than maybe people think. Well, that's kind of how yeah. I remember OJ going too. Like, I don't think anyone thought Chris Darden would be the character out of the OJ trial that you would come out caring the most about. And Sterling K. Brown kind of became the breakout. That's been one of the uh, exceptional things about this series thus far is that it takes these stories where we have the really big beats of it and, and finds human beings within it who maybe whose story, because their stories are less known, actually become more compelling in the process. Well, I mean, and that's, that's the thing about, I, I, I made the same prediction about this series is that, uh, the actor who plays, um, David Madsen, Cody Fern, who's an Australian actor, someone I had never seen anything before. I think he is definitely the Sterling K. Brown of this series. I just, I think he is an astonishing breakout and just really is, is a gut punch. And, and, but that is an interesting thing about this show. You know, I, I, once again, I hesitate to talk too much about it since I know you guys listening haven't seen it yet, but, um, there is an almost Trojan horse aspect to this series of, front loading it starting it and telling it in reverse starting it with Johnny Versace who is not only the name that viewers today recognize but the name that got a lot of the nation to take Andrew's killing spree more seriously because this is a famous person right and so that celebrity worked at the time to get the FBI and law enforcement um kicked into high gear but it's also working as for this series to maybe get viewers interested in a case where if it had just and I say just sort of ironically but if it had just been Andrew Cannon killing um four people that we maybe hadn't heard of there might not be an FX series about it but since mm-hmm. there is then we get to take this time to learn and really uh come attached to and upset by um his his assassination of these other people of Jeff Cheryl of David Madsen of Lee Miglin and the the William Reese thing is is treated a little we know so little about that but um these these become like fully fleshed sympathetic people even more so than the OJ case people I had never really heard of 
you know, and, and I think that's a, a really clever genius thing that this show does. You know, the last, the last thing I want to say before we get into our interview with Maureen is, I mean, I'm not always an advocate of you have to read the book before you see the show. And there's enough of a difference between the show and the book that I wouldn't call it required reading by any stretch of the imagination. That being said, the backwards narration of the show, the fact that it unspools in time, in a case where not all of us are familiar with the details, most of us, I would frankly say, aren't. I found Vulgar Favors enormously helpful uh, for just really nailing down the timeline of what happened when, for understanding who Andrew Kinnanen was uh, to begin with, for a deeper dive into some of the things that the show just does not have the time to get into. Um, and... You know, so I, I mean, I personally, and, and I swear Maureen is not paying me to say this. I would personally recommend buying the book. Um, because it, I think it can help with any confusion there might be with this reverse narrative. Uh, Richard, I'm, I'm interested because you didn't read the book. Um, and I don't know, maybe you were more familiar with the case than I was, but were there moments of confusion at all for you watching the episode without like diving into specifics, but like going, jumping back in time the way it does? Um, a little bit, but then you kind of just fall into the rhythm of it, you know, and, and then you, once you figure out what it's doing, it, it, it makes sense. I think, you know, um, as ever with this kind of, you know, sort of tweaked storytelling, let's say, you know, non-linear narrative, you do sometimes wonder like, well, would it have just made more sense to tell it straightforward? But, but no, in terms of as the facts uh, kind of come in, I, I think it's less about, uh, it's less of a fact-based show and more of a sort of, feeling based one and and I think that that's an interesting approach to um a show that is ostensibly about an investigation or or you know a, a true crime thing you know it's true crime but yeah. it's sort of more it has a more sort of abstract t- uh, bent to it you know yeah especially yeah it can often be uh, like a mood piece almost um exactly, yeah. uh, and Katie how about you like what did, what did you glean from the book that that was maybe helpful in in preparing you to watch the show I think what I found really useful is just like putting the self in the, putting myself in the context of the nineties and, uh, what gay culture was, like the extent to which a lot of people were closeted, um, that they might not be today. I think even though I was around in 1997, I, you know, wouldn't, it's, it's hard to remember back that far and to remember that culture has changed enormously in that amount of time. And I think that. Uh, says a lot about how Andrew Cunanan kind of managed to hide himself away and kind of live this life where he couldn't be tracked all the time. And then about, you know, maybe some of the the demons that might have gone into making him who he is. Like, I think the book does a pretty good job of not overly psychologizing. There's a way in which it's, you'll never really know why he did what he did, but just the amount of time that you spend, like, learning about his community in San Diego and what he did in San Francisco and kind of the lives that he aspired to. There's an entire section about this, like, gay fraternity where they would fly into different cities every weekend that I had never heard of before. And I was like excited to learn about that. So all of this cultural context stuff, I really found valuable. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, um, and sad and, you know, a lot of other things reminder of, of what, uh, how much sort of progress and in terms of visibility and rights and whatever, you know, uh, queer people have made in, in just 20 years, you know, which feels like not that much time. It feels like a lifetime, you know, it's, it's a lot. So I, I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that I'll probably learn things. And I think certainly younger viewers will, will, will learn a lot about what you know life was like when they were kids. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. 
The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, well then we will take this opportunity to have Maureen Orth talk to us a bit about the genesis of the book itself, where she was when she heard about the Versace murder and how she sort of had to rip everything up and start all over again and talk about... Andrew Kinnanen in this really fascinating, tragic story. With us today is Vanity Fair special correspondent Maureen Orth, author of the 1999 book Vulgar Favors, Andrew Kinnanen, Gianni Versace, and the Largest Failed Manhunt in U.S. History, which is the basis for the new FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. Maureen, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's, it'll be fun to talk about this. I, I wanted to start off by by asking you how you decided to turn your Vanity Fair coverage of Kunanen and the assassination into the book Vulgar Favors. That was a complete accident because here's what happened. Um, I had been working on the Vanity Fair article for two months before Andrew Cunanan killed Johnny Versace. I had been attracted to the story and it was almost ready to go to the printers, finally fact-checked everything when Versace was shot. That in and of itself is a whole story about how we had to race against the clock and tear apart the whole article and I had to fly down to Miami. And so um, while I was in Miami, while Cunanan was still at large and there was this huge manhunt going on and it was the number one story in the country, I got a phone call uh, from my agent who said, well, we sold the book. I said, what book? Because <laughs> what do you mean, what book? And that is exactly how the book got started. I had nothing to do with this. I was I was reading um, an article by, by one of your contemporaries who said that you... As soon as Johnny Versace was shot, you had a sense that it was Andrew Cunanan who had done this because you had been working on this story and that you told a very fair editor-in-chief at the time, Graydon Carter, about that. Uh, is is that apocryphal or is that is that true that immediately you thought it might be Andrew? Well, what happened was, was that it wasn't just me who immediately thought it might be Andrew. It was the great Vanity Fair fact checkers, too. I mean, because they got on the phone to me and... And um, because what happened was, is that when he was shot, the police did not release Andrew Cunanan's name for hours and hours. 
all we knew, it was a kid in khaki shorts with a baseball hat and a backpack. And, um, and, and I remember the Vanity Fair uh, fact checkers calling me and saying, hey, do you think that's maybe your guy? And I, and I was thinking to myself, what if it is? It's just crazy. But we couldn't uh, find out because the police refused to, this is the beginning of all the kind of weird decisions they made, but there had been an eyewitness to the murder. So they wanted her to be able to identify him in a lineup and they didn't want her, uh, her memory to be tainted. So they refused to, to release his name and the pictures or anything like that of the wanted posters because they wanted her to identify him in a lineup. So, what happened was, Graydon said, if the story is, if Cunanan is the suspect, then it's your story. But Kathy Horn, who became the fashion critic of the New York Times, was writing for Vanity Fair, and she had just done this big, fancy, glossy spread on the Versace's in South Beach for the magazine a few months before, which undoubtedly Andrew Cunanan had read. And, um, and he said, but if it's not your guy, it'll be Kathy's story. So she went down there. Um, she and I both went down there at the same time, not knowing. So here's the story. I went to a, um, screening the night before, uh, a, a premiere screening and I had to crawl. Uh, I had to crawl across this, this uh, row of people, what the guy on the end was John Kennedy Jr. and his wife. And I had to go to a phone booth at eight 30 at night and find out if the sheriff had made an announcement. And I finally found out that night that yes, it was Andrew Cunanan. And then at that point I knew that he was the only, you know, I think I was the only person in America who understood that he had met Versace before. So that's how that whole thing started. You know, and that's an interesting um, point of question that you that you address a number of times in the books that you have talked to a number of people who corroborate the story of Andrews that he had met Gianni Versace when he had been in San Francisco previously. But it was it's also a story that had been refuted, at least by some of the authorities at the time. Um, can you it's, what authorities at the time at the end of the book, there's something about the San Francisco FBI had denied it uh, for their own motivations, oh. you know, and well, yeah, the subtitle of the book was the largest failed manhunt in, in you know, US history. Right, so right. I mean, that's not surprise that's not surprising but uh basically um i have uh, several eyewitnesses to the fact that uh, versace was there and eli uh who's portrayed in episode one was a san francisco attorney a gay attorney and he and at least three other people were there they saw andrew cunan and talked to johnny versace uh, another friend of andrew's uh claims much more uh, fantastically that uh, Andrew had, he was walking along the street in San Francisco and Andrew came by in a big convertible with this decadent socialite at the time driving and, and Johnny and, uh, and Antonio, his lover in the, in the car with Andrew and Andrew had them pull over so he could show off to this guy that he was with Versace. And that was another eyewitness on the record account. So there is no doubt in my mind uh, that those two met. Now, the first episode shows them having a date. Uh, that, to my 
I do not know anything about that. I know that they met and I know that he said that Coco Chanel line to other people downstairs. Uh, you know, if you're Johnny Versace, I'm Coco Chanel. Uh, he bragged about that to several different people. And then he did come home uh, to where he was living across the bay and uh, with Liz Cote and her husband, and he did burst into their bedroom and jumped up and down on the edge of the bed and said, you can't believe who I met last night, Johnny Versace. So that all is absolutely fact based on on the record reporting. And, and it's interesting because, you know, you, you are going to get to see, I know you've already seen most most of the episodes already, but you seeing this meticulously researched thing that you've done come to life on the screen, like, this must be an amazing experience for you. What, what, what was your first initial response when Ryan or FX came to you, Ryan Murphy, uh, to talk about adapting the book for the, for the screen? These things, um, I, I didn't believe it was ever going to happen, basically, because these things, this came totally out of the blue. I, I, I'm not a fan uh, of a, of a lot of, you know, like of the hunger games or anything. So I was just told these are the producers of the hunger games. And, um, I, I had no idea, you know? Uh, and then when I called my regular lawyer, uh, up and said, these people want to do an option. And he goes, Oh, you know about this Maureen, it's not really worth the paperwork. These things never happen. So basically I was somewhat <laughs> reluctant, um, in the beginning, um, because, I wanted I, I I didn't want it to be uh, sleazy and exploitive, and I'll, particularly I cared very much about the families of the victims, uh, about um, that they not be uh, hurt again, um, and so I was reassured. Brad Simpson and Nina got on the phone with me and told me that that wasn't kind of, you know, the material here. There's a lot of uh, kind of gory and salacious material. And I just did not want that to be the the, uh, the focus. And, you know, your build as a consultant on the series, once mm-hmm. the series started going forward, what what exactly was your involvement in, in putting it together? They didn't, I didn't, no, they, they basically, you know, they, they, um, they did not use me uh, on a series on, on an episode by episode basis. The book is so uh, densely detailed mm-hmm. that they basically knew the story. So that really wasn't my role. Uh, they asked me a few questions a few times, but you know, basically no. It's so it hadn't even occurred to me when I, I was a huge fan of the first season of American crime story, the people versus OJ Simpson. And it hadn't occurred to me until I read your book how much it makes sense for this story to follow that story, how much the O.J. Simpson case informed not only the way that the media treated the Johnny Versace case, but also the the reluctance of the various um, investigators to overstep and sort of create, uh, you know, the same kind of controversy around the LAPD and the O.J. Simpson case. Um I was wondering if you could talk about that at all. It's just a really fascinating thread in this book that you wrote. Because uh, OJ had so embarrassed the legal authorities, the verdict, uh, when uh, Andrew Cunanan started this spree, his first two murders were in Minneapolis. Then there was one in Chicago and then there was one in New Jersey. And then finally Versace was in Florida. Those are all different jurisdictions that all have, uh, 
dibs, so to speak, on one aspect of the case. And they were going to have to get together if he were caught alive to decide who was going to go first and who had the laws uh, that would uh, assure that the same outcome wouldn't occur that that occurred with OJ. And so um um, but even before, uh, uh, even before in the very first murder of Jeff Trail, uh, all law enforcement was somewhat spooked by the idea that they would do anything in a circumstantial evidence case. Because if you don't, um, if, if that's what you have is circumstantial evidence and you and, and uh, you don't have a confession and, and you, you can't absolutely with eyewitnesses tie the cases together uh, or the, the murderer or the suspect to the, uh, you know, to the crime, then then they were very, very spooked that they weren't going to be, you know, allowed to, to present certain evidence in court if it hadn't gone by the book. And as a result, that often gave Andrew Kumanin time uh, to get away. It's incredible. There's also this this treatment of uh, sort of um, tragedy as, as tabloid fodder. I just wanted to read back to you a, a part of your prologue that that really struck me about the way we live now and the way we follow the whole Trump media circus. You you were speaking with um, Castro resident Doug Conaway um, about yeah. the whole thing. And he said, he said to you, when I came home to hear that Versace had been shot and they think it's Cunan, and I thought, my God, he once lived in our neighborhood. Conway con- confided, if it weren't for Cunanan, we wouldn't have seen Diana at Versace's funeral. So someone from our neighborhood caused that. But then when Cunanan's body was found, I was so disappointed. What am I supposed to go back to? Campaign finance reform? And like, you know, obviously this is someone who's being a little extra flip for your benefit. But um, I, it did make me think of the way that we um, – so get so stimulated by the the constant media circus these days and and the idea of focusing on something like campaign finance reform just seems so boring and you know i I was wondering if if in writing this book um you were surprised by what you saw in terms of the media or public reaction to this string of of rather gruesome murders the uh the issue back then was was much more about uh because we have come down such a such a slippery slope <laughs> we have slid down so far since 20 years ago even today obviously where everything is treated is treated like a reality show as opposed to you know it, I, I think you you deset you know we as a society are far more desensitized uh because it is just it it's going by so rapidly and it in and uh uh, most of the time, people are thinking you can't make this stuff up, but there are real lives involved and there are real, uh, real tragic and, and, and long-term consequences involved. And um, at that time, uh, which I, I think is, is not so much the case today, is there was a huge raging debate about whether you paid for sources or not, because a lot of these people learned very quickly because of the OJ thing that so many of the media were making, um, you know, they were making a lot of money off of ratings and selling stories and all this other stuff. So that a lot of people, a lot of people were tempted to just say, well, I won't talk to you unless you pay me to talk. 
And obviously that was a cardinal rule of journalism is that you don't pay sources because if you pay sources, they're tainted. I mean, they may want to tell you what they want to hear, what you want to hear. For example, um, in in um, the National Enquirer just trotted out an old story, I think last week, uh, that they had from the time of the of the um, of the original story of the murders, saying that um, that uh, Andrew Cunanan was obsessed with Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise was down there in Clearwater, Florida, where Scientology is located uh, at the same time. And, you know, Andrew Cunanan was HIV positive and he could go infect Tom Cruise. I mean, that is bizarre and completely false. He was not HIV positive. And for the National Enquirer to, to reprint that story or pull it out of their archives just to get in on the act right now, uh, when, when it's obviously through the through the autopsy showed that Andrew Cunanan was not <clears throat> HIV positive is completely irresponsible. Okay. But the point but somebody got paid. You know, they paid somebody a lot of money uh for that stuff. And in my book I do think um there's one of Andrew's old roommates who got paid a whole bunch of money and then he became kind of a pariah in the Hillcrest neighborhood because he took so much money uh, for and, and, you know, they kept pushing him to make more stuff up. So those were the issues at the time about how do you uh, evaluate the facts uh, if you've got a bunch of sources that want to be paid. And then, of course, the TV networks do all kinds of things uh like, well, we'll pay you for your photos or we'll fly you to New York and put you up in a first class hotel and then you can come on our show. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that, you know, you're not directly saying you get paid for your interview, but other stuff happens. You know, it's it's interesting reading reading through your book and you talk to so many people. It's just astonishing. But um 400, yeah. <laughs> at least. <laughs> but, but trying to, to sift through... Um, I just think you do a really good job of, of when you have spoken to someone that you clearly don't believe, you'll report what they say, but you also have some good interrogation in there of like, well, but, you know, these are what the other sources say about this. So I, I think it's really helpful way for us to navigate uh, what is fact and what is fiction um, in, in all these people trying to tell their story around Andrew's story. Um and 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 one really interesting thing I, I thought that you that you process in this book is how many of the um, distracting stories that that the law enforcement was dealing with, like the idea that the Jeff David Andrew um, murders are some kind of um, hysterical love triangle, lover spat sort of thing, or this notion that you just mentioned that Andrew was on a HIV vengeance killing spree came from within the gay community, that these are elements of the case that people now looking back say, well, those are kind of like homophobic takes on this particular case. But the sources were from within the gay community. I thought that was really interesting. Well, I, thank you for bringing this up because this is really important to understand. We need to look at this story through the factual lens, not through a political lens uh, necessarily. And, um, all the time, because when I was doing when I was doing the reporting, uh, 
95% of my sourcing, except, you know, except for law enforcement, uh, the people that I was speaking to in law enforcement and the relatives and families of the victims and some of the friends of the victims, my sources were all gay. And, and so I was reflecting, I was reflecting what they were, what they were telling me because Andrew at the time was a person who didn't really, uh, prefer to have any contact as much in the heterosexual community. He preferred to live mostly in the gay community. And so the, that's where the story, uh, that's where the story was. So, uh, so uh, because of, because of so much uh, history of discrimination, et cetera, it doesn't, uh, some people don't feel comfortable that a kind of um, a, a more of a of a an underbelly of the world that he inhabited because look he was a, he was a drug dealer uh, he was a he was a prostitute uh, the, the, I'm reflecting his life I am not reflecting gay life I'm reflecting Andrew Kumanin's life and um, and I think that's a very important point to remember I think there were some criticisms when the book came out that um I was I was looking at the New York Times review, you know, right. about sort of the way in which the gay community is depicted in the book. Was did that surprise you at all? Was there anything about the reaction that surprised yeah. you? Yeah, it did surprise me because I felt exactly. I felt my God. I talked to over four hundred people. I spent. Uh, you see how detailed the book is. I have a reputation for being an accurate reporter. I am reflecting the life that Andrew lived. I thought that was intellectually dishonest to say that, that, you know, somehow that I was uh, uh, being critical of the gay community. I was not being critical of the gay community. I was reporting what went on. Andrew um, was, was a, uh, um, a consumer of violent S and M pornography. I talked to experts who said that crystal meth combined with the pornography would have, would have disturbed his mind, uh, in a way and, and created, you know, uh, fantasies in his head that he would have to escalate and escalate in order to become satisfied, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is not a pretty picture. But we're talking about a serial killer. The show makes a few dramatic narrative leaps and elides some facts or changes them slightly to make a, a neater, tighter narrative because you you are writing a fact-based examination and they are making an entertainment-based television show. But when you when you see stuff like them reordering the timeline or leaving out large swaths of Andrew Andrew's life, um, how does how does that make you feel to see that? Well, I understand. Um, that that my my book is quote the basis for my book is not a reenactment so um i understand that it's not going to be it there it is their choice once they decide to base something on on my book they have artistic license uh, to do certain things um yes there's some there's a few places where things didn't happen at all um, um, maybe I don't, you know, but, but that's what you do when you say that it's the basis of, and it is not the factual story. One of the very interesting things they decided to do in, for the sake of art or uh, making a more compelling story is to tell the story in reverse. What, do you have any thoughts on the backward mm -hmm. structure of the show and how it, how it evolves? You know, it's interesting. Um, 
because this is this is a this is such a hard thing for me to judge because I already know everything about the story, you know. So for me, it doesn't matter whether you tell it in reverse or you tell it for you know <laughs> you tell it chronologically because uh, for, as a viewer watching it. I can't put myself in your place because I already know all the facts of the story. So it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't um, have any effect on me because I, I already know all this. And so I, I know it was interesting that a couple of uh, people after the preview the other night said a couple of things startled them because if they hadn't read the book, they don't understand where this is coming from, but obviously that'll be something that will be um, answered on down the line. Um, but I, I, uh, I thought it was very interesting that, that they began to do that because it's a bigger challenge for them. And, it, and, and the fact that, you know, they can pull it off, it shows just their talent really. And if anyone's confused, they should just pick up and read your book, right? If they don't know what's going <laughs> oh, on. we would love, I would like people to read my book. That would be very nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and, you know, you've, you've gotten a, a lot of chance to interact with Darren Chris, uh, you know, for a spotlight in our magazine and, and elsewhere. Uh, what do you think of the way in which Darren has, has captured Andrew? I have to say that I think he's done a, a really, really good job, a really sensitive, interesting portrayal because he's, he's, he's showing you. Uh, the creepiness of Cunanan, but he's also showing you the charisma of Cunanan. Don't forget, Andrew Cunanan was a charmer. Andrew Cunanan was a, a, a liar and a con artist. But a lot of times in Hillcrest, even when all of these guys that he hung around with knew he was lying, he was just so witty and funny and so entertaining that they didn't care because they were being entertained. And so it's a really tough thing to pull off that you're a truly evil, deeply, deeply dark and evil human being. But at the same time, you're able to get away with so much. And I think that Darren has really done a wonderful job of being able to portray that dichotomy. Yeah, it's it's eerie watching him. Um, and then, you know, my last question is, without getting too much in, into specifics, because not many people have even seen the show yet, what do you think the series' greatest accomplishment is in terms of reflecting this story for a new audience? Well, I haven't seen the last uh, episode that, that might put that whole, you know, dot that I or cross that T or put it all together. But I really do think that um, I really do think that that what the series is, 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 I think, as stated, wanting to accomplish is the difference between um, life today, if you're involved in a in a in a crime um, that has to do mostly with gay people versus what it was then. And um, I think that that uh, they wanted to capture a certain part of life. Uh, as it was being lived at the time, because there's a lot of antecedents to the kind of the way that Versace marketed his lifestyle, uh, to the way that the um, gay community didn't have enough political power at the time to really force law enforcement to really um, um, pay attention uh, to them enough. For example, the idea that the FBI wanted posters of Andrew Cunanan stayed in the trunk of the FBI uh, um, fugitive uh, 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 
officer assigned to the case, you know, they stayed in the trunk of his car and they weren't distributed around. That that just simply isn't going to happen today. But at the same time, the gay community wasn't organized uh, and wasn't politically sophisticated as much as it, as it is today. And so I think that they're trying to show you, uh, I think they're trying to show you a kind of history, but also I think one of the poignant parts of the series is to really show the deep, deep, pain that it causes someone to have to live in the closet um, and and not be able, things that we somehow take for granted today, um, because so much of of what Andrew was able to exploit was the secrecy and, and kind of the shame and, and, and the pain um, that, that it, it happened for a lot of people at that time of don't ask, don't tell, and and of uh, people having to live double lives that is not so much required anymore. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm really excited for everyone to read your book and watch the show and, and really uh, dive back into this completely fascinating story. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Still Watching. We'll be back next week with our discussion of the premiere episode of the series and another interview of behind the scenes of how the show all came together. Until then, Katie Rich, where can people find you? <laughs> I'm at VanityFair.com. It's an easy place to find me. <laughs> and Richard Lawson? Also VanityFair.com. Also Ryla's on Twitter. This episode was produced by Dave Gonzalez and engineered by Danielle Roth. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.